This is Read, Watch, Play. I'm Cleo. I'm Justin. I'm James. And we have some special news to start off with. Uh, Corinne is now officially not no longer a guest, but a permanent member of our group. Hi, everybody. <laughs> yeah, now we insert like, We would just insert applause. Like, applause and cheers. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's fine. We'll, so, we'll, we'll, we'll do it in post. Woo, yay, claps. So we're very excited for this. Um, and today we'll be talking about the Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Shavon. So before we get too deep into things, I just want to know general impressions from you guys. Well, I'm off to a great start because I did not finish the book. In my defense, Justin and I just moved in uh, and got a new place together pretty recently. Um, so that was pretty, uh, <laughs> that, that was very time consuming. Yeah. So. I also did not finish the book, although I made it a little further than... Corinne did. Yeah. My impressions of what I read were really positive, although apparently I got up to where the book takes a, like a hard right turn into just craziness in a good way. But I got to say my impressions, the first session I sat down and read it, I was like, oh, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm into this. I'm here. I really like it. And then uh, the next day I like picked it back up again and I started getting the feeling like I'm, I like what the book is. <sighs> It's it's hard for me to put it into words. Like, I like what the book is presenting itself as to me, but there's something about it that I think I'm not really that into. I haven't been able to put my finger on it, but I'm kind of so-so on how I feel about it. I say I this is this was my second time reading this. I read this for the first time a few years ago uh, over over a summer. And I remember coming off of the first time that I read it being similarly lukewarm. And I liked it a lot more this time. And I don't know if that's just because it's a good thing to go back and reread or if I was just more just feeling it more for whatever other reason. But I think that that idea of the way that the book quote unquote like presents itself versus what it is is actually a really good one. And I don't know that that's actually necessarily the book's fault. I think it's the fault of the way people talk about the book. Because I definitely went into it thinking like this is that it has way more to do with comic books than it does again that first time. And I think it helps a lot to come into it with like an accurate idea of what this is actually a book about. And this is a book about people that is also about comic books, but not in the kind of like specific way that I feel like it was sold to me the very first time I read it. I'm going to torpedo your thesis right there and say I had no idea what this book was about going into it. Well, never know. mind. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like there there was some kind of disconnect between between two aspects of the book, whether that's what the book was trying to be about and what it was actually about, or whether that was you know the message of the book and uh, the the way it got there. I don't know. I'm not really sure that some, something about it just seemed a little disjointed to me, and I wasn't really feeling it. Yeah. I don't know if I'd go as far as to say what the book is trying to be about, because I think, and maybe this is just something from the book in its entirety, but I think that it comes together really nicely. Okay, yeah. Um, Grain of salt. But, yeah. I haven't read all of it, so I don't know how it ultimately ends, but I know I wasn't feeling it as much as I started reading more. Yeah, which which is totally fair, but I, I think in specific reference to the reason why I think I was lukewarm on it the first time and enjoyed it a lot more the second time is because it was absolutely sold to me as oh, this is like a really good book and it's like about comic books and it's about like magic and stuff like that. But it's 
and it is those things, but it's about those things on a much more conceptual level and how things like that tie together and a very much about escape and escapism and what that means to people, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that was the thing for me was it was, it was not necessarily what I was expecting the first time I read it. And I think when I reread it and knew exactly what I was getting into, I was able to enjoy it a lot more with that, which is not to say that that's what anyone else was experiencing. But I think though that I've seen several reviews that where people are frustrated because they expect it to be a much more comic booky kind of book as opposed to being a book about people who kind of incidentally write and draw comic books. Yeah. Even judging from, uh, like I had, I opted not to really read any synopses, any, anything about the book. Once we had decided on it, I was just like, well, I'm going to read it. So I'm just going to go in cold. Mm -hmm. And even based on like the prologue chapter, which is, um, Sam, like at a comic con, right. He like introduces the book talking about like being, like, at some kind of... Unless it's... Am I just blending with something that, like, Shabon himself wrote? I mean, there are times when they, they do talk about, uh, in the future, when people would go to conventions and talk about it. Yeah, okay, I think that, that opening chapter, I think, is... I don't know if this is a Comic-Con specifically, but it is some kind of comics convention, and he's Wonder giving Con. some kind of... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's like I knew he mentioned going reference. to a comic convention, being on a panel, or, like, doing a Q&A or something, and talking about the comics that he wrote. And so that, for me, made it seem like it was going to be a lot more about comics than it ended up being. Um, but it was easier to just sort of be like, oh, okay, that was just our introduction to the character and not necessarily our introduction to the book. Hmm. And sort of come away without having that, that impression that it was going to be as about comic books is. Yeah. No, which I think is totally fair. And I, I think that that's, again, based on some reviews that I've seen. And I think even just my own expectations, I think that's a real kind of unfortunate way in the way that this book is sold to people sold being a rough word, not specifically not, not the way it's marketed, but the way other people will tell. Yeah. Talk about, about it. Yeah. yeah word is, of mouth. Yeah. This is, this really is much closer to, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example, but this it's, it's really much more the story about people who are incidentally involved with comic books and speaking to comic books on a thematic level. But if, if you are looking for something that is like, really about like the day-to-day -day life of someone who like writes or draws comic books or like the drama comes from sales numbers or anything like that or like what's going to happen in a story that's not that's not really what this is a book about yeah how about you Cleo <laughs> I I went into this and the reason I suggested this book in the first place is I really really wanted to love this book because I'd heard you know it's a Pulitzer winner I had like heard great things about it. People like will talk, go on and on about it. All my friends on Goodreads gave it five stars. You know, you gotta trust that. But um, and I don't have a thing against long books as a con in general. I know like there's there was an article floating around recently about like long books shouldn't really be so much of a thing. Like people really need to learn to edit. And I think like that's true in a lot of cases. But there are some books that require being long in order to get the entire story across. And I wanted this to be one of those books, but I just I, I just didn't quite feel that it was like they were i thought points could be gotten across a little bit more effectively not just like in general but more potently more effectively if it had been a little bit shorter in places because i mean i listened to the audiobook did any of you guys also listen to the audiobook mm -hmm. i did for uh chunks of this run through but originally i uh read the book yeah and so i ended up like the last maybe like third of the book i listened to at like an impossibly high speed because i just felt like i need to get through this i need to get through this and it does like i mean the book 
is worth reading. I mean, if you're into this kind of thing, I guess, but I don't know. It just, again, maybe it's just because I really wanted to love this book and I, I don't, I would never say that I, I love this book. I mean, I, I would say I enjoyed it and I liked it, but three or four stars on Goodreads. Honestly, I keep going back and forth, but right now I'm feeling pretty hard three. It's fair. I, the thing for me that I think really, like, he likes to, like, what I like to call this, he really likes to paint word pictures. Like, he spends a lot of time paying an intense amount of attention to creating the scene that that characters are in. And so even the other negatives about like how long it takes him to do things, like if he, if that wasn't such like, I don't know if that's characteristic of his style in general, uh, although I'm guessing it probably is, uh, but even cutting out a lot of that or, or making that stuff tighter, I feel like could have, could have easily pared this down into something way more digestible. I don't know. I think it would have lost a lot. I don't know. Maybe I'm in the minority here, but I, I didn't necessarily mind the length, but I, I think a lot of the, for me, the most like joyful moving moments in the books came in the book came from that kind of prose. I have to actually agree that there were some passages that were extremely successful because he would paint these incredible pictures and then he would punctuate them, uh, at, at the end of the passage with this like extremely juxtaposed uh, just just moment um i i don't know if i can safely get go into any of them without getting into spoiler territory sure but we can we can address some but, of those specifics later i i have one it's just a short one but i one that doesn't necessarily touch on anything it i don't know if this is one that struck you but i it, that doesn't get into spoilers but there's there is a moment where he talks about like New York City never being quite so beautiful as to like a young person who has just done something that they know is just like really amazing. And I, I I should find the passage, but it's there's something about it that really was like moving to me. And I think it's the kind of thing that you're talking about because it's it follows this flowing description of looking out over New York City and just the grime and grit and sunrise of it. I thought the the strengths were he he would do this thing a lot where there would be these these word pictures and then there would be like a single sentence that would just punctuate it and and it would retroactively you know either make you appreciate the the previous passage more or highlight something about it or or just just something there would be some effect added by this like this this punctuation sentence at the end um if we want to take the spoiler break as past Joe's background mm. uh there was this when he was describing the whole train ride with the the golem there was this just incredibly powerful moment where he was like you know I, i'm gonna read it out loud right now cornblum whose encyclopedic knowledge of the railroads of this part of europe was in a few short years to receive a dreadful appendix that was just wow that kicked me like i had to I had to get up from, I had to put the book down, get up, walk away. Cause that just kicked me in the chest. Yeah. That was rough. Yeah. And it, it was right there after this whole description of his train ride and everything. So he was very successful at, at, at that specific thing. Um, which I think lends itself to the lengthier prose, which, you know, I, I enjoyed. There were stylistic elements that I enjoyed. Could the book have been shorter? 
probably. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I disagree with that. I think it, what it falls into more for me is that he tends to do it all the time. Yep. Where it's only powerful some of the time. Yeah. And so a lot of the word pictures that he paints at different points when he's not trying to send a clear message with them could have been shortened or... That's very true. Or, uh, or edited down. I don't... Yeah, I don't think that they all deserved the that kind of treatment because if there's there's a point to devoting that kind of time to something um, in certain instances. I don't really... I can't really say, like if you like X, then read this book. Like, I don't really, I don't really know how to, you know, to go back to another point, sell this book to somebody. I think it's a hard thing. I'll say this. I think that it's worth taking a look at the kinds of books that this usually gets kind of discussed in the same circles as, and taking that more as your guide towards what kind of a book it is. Mm. It, this is, this is not like a prose comic book. This is not something that's like, oh, for comic book lovers. This is not the kind of thing that's necessarily the Comic-Con crowd, which is not to say that it's not, like, if you enjoy comics, you won't enjoy it. But it's that I, again, I feel like it was so often presented as, like, oh, if you like comics, this that's, like, a direct correlation to enjoying this kind of book. And I think that that's unfortunately not really the case. It's, but, it's almost more if you like the comic industry, if you like the idea of knowing the story behind the people, right? If you're so connected to the industry that you would want to know the story behind the people, this is an interesting yeah. fiction book in that sense. But even then, it's so far removed from... Right, because it is fiction at the end of the day. Like, it does touch on, and you do get to kind of casually and briefly meet actual famous historical figures in comics. And I think that that adds... A, having a, Being familiar with that adds a certain amount to enjoying the book. Yeah. But I don't think that it necessarily means that you will enjoy it. It's For sure. Yeah, I think that's the really hard thing. I think you need to be interested in a story about people, which sounds like a silly thing to say because what story is – every story is effectively about people. But it's – But, the, I mean, the primary focus of the story – like, this is the story of these people. Right. Whereas you'll see a lot of, you know, books that are about events or about things or... Yeah, this is know. not about, like, a plot that moves forward in a way like that. This is about the adventures of Cavalier and Clay and how these two young men grow and change and go from being kind of a couple of boy geniuses to being just adults. And it's... I wouldn't call it a coming-of-age story, but it is about just the lives of two relatively ordinary people but all i would say also extremely extraordinary yeah this book does span like a very it's pretty what like 11 years more than that obviously it's 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 a long timeline but there's yeah. like a there's like a jump and stuff i mean that's not oh shit that's a spoiler fuck my life kill me uh, <laughs> oh i think it's like, it it does jump around it's yeah i mean it covers most of the adult lives of yeah of our yeah and it by and large does a good job of jumping over the parts that are just like and then they worked really hard for five years yeah it's like no and then we jump right to the next like big exciting point of interest yeah but that can also be like i feel like it adds with, with, with the along with the book length like kind of long spans of time throughout one story can lend itself to a book feeling like it's dragging a little bit or feeling a little bit weird yeah. at times and so if you're i'd say if you're a person who doesn't like books that span a very very long span of time then this might not be great fair and i would say there's not a lot of action 
yeah. if you're someone who's looking for like action or big like driving events it, you really need to be committed because you want to know what happens to these characters in just how they grow and change there's not like this bigger driving force there's not like this big there's not some MacGuffin that's pushing the story forward. You you have to stick around just because you're interested in what will happen to Sam and Joseph. The MacGuffin is success. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's fair. It, it, this vague notion of success. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this vague notion of success, this vague notion of escape, this vague notion of America. But yeah, yeah it's... Yeah, no, I think that's a great thing to say. It's... Yeah, I think that's that's probably the best way to put it. This is not like a, a plot-driven thing. This is very much just purely characters. I'd also say that this is maybe not the best book to read in a very like short span of time because you're like trying to get trying to get through a long book in a short span of time can be like kind of hard on its own. But then it's also kind of a bummer. This book has like you know it there's a lot of stuff that happens that isn't like to the characters that isn't great or you know it's tragic. It is not um, a feel-good story. Yeah. And so, like, that can be, I mean, that can be emotionally draining when you're, like, reading, you're taking on a big book, which is, like, what, like, 650-ish pages, we were saying? Yeah. yeah. Something around there. Um, and it's not gonna, like, you're not gonna put down the book before you go to bed feeling like, oh, well, like, I feel hopeful <laughs> about these people's futures. Yeah, sure. I think I saw when I was looking around that there's an abridged version. I believe you're correct. I'd oh, be man. interested to see... Maybe I'll, maybe I'll pick that up and start at from the beginning. Yeah. I'd be interested to see what was taken out, provided I actually finished the unabridged version. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because, like, they were tr they were trying to make this into a movie, like, back in, what, like, 2006? Um, maybe so even earlier, right? Oh, maybe. Was yeah, it, it got options, like, a year after. It got options, like, right around when it won the Pulitzer. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, just, um... How... And I think it was Michael Shabon who was, um doing the adaptation or he was one of the people who was working on the adaptation okay. and according to wikipedia which is always true um of course it was he there was something about him being like very unprecious about his work so he would like one of the problems that they were having with trying to adapt it was that he would like cut out scenes that other people thought like we need to have this we need to have this and he would be like we don't need this fine let's cut it out wow that is which just, is like the opposite exactly right how so it normally happens considering also yeah, the length of this like, yeah man michael you rock michael shaper but part of me also wishes, like, well, should you have written those scenes in the first place if they were so unnecessary? <laughs> the abridged version is actually just, like, ten pages long and is just a dry retelling of events by date. <laughs> it's a timeline. Notable, it's just a timeline. Notable events by date. September 1941. It's a collapsible two-foot-long timeline that has that you can just pull out and it's, like, you can put it up on your wall and it's just, that's, that's all it is. I'd buy it. There is talk about this potentially becoming like a mini series, like an HBO like eight episode thing. That's what needs to happen. If it, if this is going to get a, any kind of film adaptation, it needs to be it needs to get the eleven twenty two sixty three treatment. Yeah, because yeah. otherwise, if you try to fit this into a movie, what's it's going to be the, the the problem that always happens where they try to focus on one aspect of the plot to make it work in movie format and just lose the entire rest of the book, which yeah, I, was the yeah. actual important stuff. Trying to picture this book as a movie, like yeah. movies, also just like so much more so than than a you know a mini like a TV series or a miniseries. They require that sort of ongoing, driven form of the plot because that's just what movies are. You, you know, you've got two and a half hours to keep you know to make to get eyeballs in front of your screen to get butts and chairs and 
to get people walking out having enjoyed it. And I feel like a movie version of this is going to be none of those things. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I think you're 100% right. That it a film is the thing that would suffer the most from that lack of extrinsic I guess extrinsic is not. I was just like extrinsic motivation for the characters because the the core plot is internal to each person. And I think that yeah, no, I completely agree. So I think with that, uh we should probably move into spoiler territory. Yeah. Um, but first we've got a very exciting announcement. We're going to be announcing our next series of episodes. Uh, our topic is going to be solitude. Really or, cheerful. Or, yeah. yeah, you know, just just more dark and depressing stories, you know, or, whichever. But so we're going to be starting by reading uh, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle by uh, Haruki Murakami. And then we're going to be watching Lost in Translation. And then we're going to be playing Gone Home, which I know all of us are really excited about because we've been dying to find Jumping some way to play Gone Home on this podcast since its inception. Oh, it's so so I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm already really excited about all of these. So I don't know. I, I'm almost upset that we have to keep talking about escape. <laughs> <laughs> but so definitely come back for our next series for that. That's going to be a lot of fun. Until then, though, this will be the spoiler line for events in the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay. And so, yeah. <laughs> Hi everybody, we've decided to try something new with this series and start including a brief summary of the piece of media we're discussing at the beginning of the spoiler section to help give some context to the rest of the conversation. The summary will include plot points all the way through the end of the book, but we don't want to spoil any more than we need to, so we'll be avoiding anything that we don't touch on during the episode. Joseph Cavalier and Sam Clayman begin the book as two young men in 1939 New York City. Sam, 17 and weak in the legs from a childhood case of polio, lives with his mother in Brooklyn. His father, a circus strongman using the name The Mighty Molecule, abandoned the family when Sam was very young. Joe, 19, has just arrived in America, having been smuggled out of Europe in a coffin containing the Golem of Prague. It took everything his family had to arrange for Joe's escape, so his mother, father, grandfather, and young brother had to stay behind. Upon reaching America, Joe goes to stay with his aunt and cousin, Sam and his mother. Sam works for a man named Sheldon Annapol, who runs a company that sells whoopee cushions, toy radios, and x-ray specs. Upon learning that Joe is a classically trained artist, Sam decides to talk to Annapol about launching a line of superhero comics. Their first hero, the Golem, is rejected, but the boys are given the weekend to come up with something new. They wander New York, trying to come up with the next Superman, until the Escapist, a masked member of the Order of the Golden Key, devoted to freeing the enslaved people of the world from bondage, is born. After gathering up a group of Sam's friends, the boys set up shop in a small apartment building, where they briefly encounter Rosa Luxemburg Sachs, a painter and socialite. Over the course of the weekend, the group produces not only the first escapist story, but a whole roster of characters with whom they fill the very first issue of what will become the flagship series of Empire Comics. Perhaps the most notable element of the book is the cover, which features an intricate drawing of the escapist punching Adolf Hitler in the jaw. Annapol thinks that this is pushing things a bit too far and offers to buy the rights for every character in the book and hire Sam and Joe on to continue the series, but only on the condition that they change the cover. The boys turn him down and start to leave, but Annapol folds, letting them run the cover as is. The book is wildly successful, but even with the new source of income, Joe finds himself unable to make any headway in his attempts to bring his family over to America. He pours his frustration into his art, but even that isn't quite enough, and he begins to wander around the city looking for fights with any Germans he can find, and losing almost every one. 
One night, at a party in Greenwich Village, he is reintroduced to Rosa Luxemburg Sachs, who explains to Joe that she works with an organization that is trying to bring a boat full of children from Europe to America. While the boat couldn't bring his entire family, it could at least bring his younger brother, Thomas. As Joe becomes increasingly involved with the organization, he and Rosa begin to fall in love, and she goes on to inspire the character of Luna Moth. Meanwhile, at the same party, Sam stumbles across two men kissing and begins to question his own sexuality. Not long after, he meets Tracy Bacon, the voice of the escapist on the upcoming radio serial, and the two begin to date in secret. Things go well for Sam and Joe, who start to take on more and more comics to meet the growing demand. Their stories push the medium in new directions, with characters like Luna Moth introducing elements of sex and surrealism, while the escapist, inspired by Citizen Kane, sheds much of his Nazi-fighting heroism to explore what other kinds of stories comics can tell, and becomes a book aimed squarely at adults. Sam is coming to terms with his feelings towards Tracy, and Joe and Rosa have moved in together. But their run of good luck ends abruptly when Joe hears that the ship carrying his brother to America has been sunk by a German submarine. After attempting suicide, Joe disappears, leaving Rosa before she can tell him that she is pregnant with their child. Meanwhile, Sam and Tracy are at a party with a group of other gay men when the house is raided by police. After being assaulted by one of the police officers, Sam returns home to find Rosa considering getting an abortion and suggests that the two of them get married instead. Together, Sam and Rosa move to the suburbs and raise the child, who they name Thomas after Joe's lost brother. Sam tries to get away from comics, but fails at everything else he does, and finds himself writing and editing at a series of different publishers. Rosa starts writing and illustrating romance comics under the name Rose Saxon, and the two are fairly successful. Sam loves Thomas like his own child, but the boy begins to suspect that he is not Sam's biological son. One day, while skipping school to go into Manhattan, Thomas discovers that Joe, who introduces himself as a cousin, has returned. Thomas keeps this news secret for months, but eventually Joe, Sam, and Rosa are reunited. Joe reveals to Sam that, during the time he's been hiding out in the city, he has been working on a new comic. It is the length of a novel, features no text besides chapter titles, and stars the golem, backed by a cast of angels and rabbis. The two men are discussing ways that they might publish it when Joe realizes that all the money he's set aside for his family all those years ago has been sitting at a bank account gathering interest. However, he cannot bring himself to withdraw the money yet, and Sam doesn't press the issue. Some days later, a box is delivered to Sam and Rose's house, where Joe has been staying. The box is the coffin in which Joe escaped to America and contains the remains of the Golem of Prague. Shortly after Joe's reappearance, Sam's sexuality is publicly revealed on national television during a hearing inspired by Dr. Frederick Wortham's Seduction of the Innocent. Feeling shaken, but also somewhat freed, Sam returns home. He reveals that he was considering skipping town, but agrees to stay at Joe and Rose's insistence. In the middle of the night, he packs a bag and leaves while everyone else is asleep, leaving the house to Rosa and Joe. We're still in the pilot phase for our summary section, so we'd love to hear any thoughts you might have. If you have any feedback, please feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter at RWP Podcast or Facebook.com slash RWP Podcast. We now return to your regularly scheduled podcast already in progress. So one of the things that I actually think is a really good transition from what you were saying, Corinne, where there's the idea that the MacGuffin is success or, <laughs> but so I think with that, I think that that's not only just like a really good point, but I think that it is the driving force. And I think that it seems like a good transition from what we were, we were just talking about where it seems like the real kind of stories here are primarily 
these stories of escape for Joe and Sammy, where you've yeah. got this idea of Joe escaping from Prague and just World War Two Europe, and Sam escaping from, I mean, effectively from the place to which Joe wants to come, which is his very, his relatively normal life in Brooklyn, New York, where, but for both of them, like, I mean, Joe wants to escape from this old life and come into the new country, whereas Sam is more kind of escaping from this idea of what he's expected to be. I mean, it just, his whole kind of journey towards accepting the fact that he's gay and finding the kind of life that he actually wants for himself. Whereas, I mean, Joe's really just kind of trying to hit the point where he sort of has become his own person as opposed to being just this kind of sort of man apart who still kind of has half a foot in Prague and half, I guess, has a foot in Prague and a foot in America, which he struggles with for a lot of the book. I really like the way that, that Shavon put it with, as Rosa thinking about him mm-hmm. in that one scene when he she wakes up one morning and he's like standing in front of a mirror in her room mm-hmm. looking at how, like the weight he's gained and how he's sort of normalizing and the idea that he's like, he may have traveled here when he did, but he's been like slowly like moving from Prague to New York, like pound by pound, just sort of this process where he is still filling out as this real human that exists in America. It was like just perfect. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that's really the core to, to his character. And I think that's why at the end, when, when the box of dirt shows up with, the remains of the golem and then that's kind of bringing along supposedly like the souls of his family and that's why the box is so heavy even though it's just dirt and the sense that this is now when the cavaliers have finally made it to america and that's sort of what frees him up to go and take that money that he's been saving for them and go and use that and spend that on something that's arguably for sammy but also for himself and something that they can do together and moving forward into this new part in his life and not being tied back to kind of the ghosts of his family even though he sits here and he knows all the terrible things that happened to them but he can come forward and say that he also has to live his life and this is it feels like this is the moment where he finally really escapes from Prague, and then you have sammy who's a very different thing where he starts in brooklyn but he's very much stuck with these ideas of what he's supposed to be like and what kind of a man is supposed to be like and what, say, just a person in general is supposed to be like and the things you're supposed to do or not do and that he's very concerned with that. But even just like from the beginning that he wants to get out of that. And it seems like at first he sees that as wanting to get out of what he just sees as his life in Brooklyn. And then you realize that it's it's that dissatisfaction with his life, but not specifically with living on Flatbush, but with just a much broader idea of like the life that it feels like he's supposed to live and what he actually can do with that. And that that same deal where when he gets you know outed during the comic book hearings and the juvenile delinquency hearings and it's just the cat's out of the bag and he can't do anything about that and you know when he talks about it as being so freeing and that he doesn't have to keep the secret all the time anymore and that it's just something that's out there and even when they talk about like during his relationship with Rosa when he goes and they're saying that the fact that Sammy's gay is this thing that is the big sort of unspoken secret that both of them know and kind of pretend that they both don't know. 
and you know when they're in the bar after the hearings and sammy's saying like you know it's like i like i'm not hearing a lot of surprise from you two to to joe and rosa and they kind of look at each other in sort of a way that's like well oh no (laughs) really you know and it's like yeah it's like that everyone knew and that you know rosa knew that their marriage was out of convenience it was a way for sammy to get away from you know this culture that he was very scared of being a part of at that point when you know rosa needed someone to be a father for the kid that she had when joe leaves that day you know and that just that moment where rosa goes to sammy and she's just like i i think i need an abortion and sammy has the idea that well instead we could just pretend and offers to raise thomas is his own i think that's that's so the i think that's so central to those characters and the idea of like that's that's the driving force right is that's that wanting to get to to get out of whatever shackles they've been in whether it is joe's obligations to his family or sam's obligations to just this i guess the world this what he thinks of as being his like responsibilities and the role he's supposed to fill and just finding their way out of that through comic books and through magic and through you know through escape but pulling those things together and then to go back to the the comment that i made a little bit earlier uh in response to one of your comments Corinne, where you were talking about feeling like there were kind of a lot of things that it wasn't necessarily gelling and which is not to say that you would or would not have felt differently towards the end of the book. But I think for me, that's where that's where they gel and they gel much more thematically mm-hmm. where it's this sense of magic is being about escaping, like literally in Joe's case and comics is being escapism. And, but that escape is all of these things and it's escaping from your obligations that you feel you have, or this sense of who you're supposed to be, or like very literally from Europe or from bondage or what have you. I, I think that that's the point for me where it really gels. And I don't know if it really was, because again, I didn't, I didn't feel quite as positive about this after my first reading. So I don't know if it is just, it's once you see all of it gel and you see the ways that they are trying to come together, maybe it is just reading it again and being able to read it with that in mind from the beginning and understanding the way that they come together. I, I think helped my reading a lot. Um, but it really did end up being one of the things that I liked a lot because I, I, does, does this ever happen to any of you where someone will come and they'll just be like, oh, someone who doesn't, say, read comics or play video games or something, will come and say, like, oh, no, like, I, I heard about this book that everyone's talking about or this movie that everyone's watching, and it's got video games in it. Like, you like video games, you'd like it. And then they give you Armada. And you're just like, <laughs> it's like, no, like, this isn't really for me. Or something like that, where it's, this is something about comics for people who don't actually read comics. This is based on what people think of comics or games or what have you as being, like, not the actuality and i think that my first reaction to this book was like it felt a little bit like that for a while until the end where you get to no it is like about that but it's it's about it one level deeper than so many people like to go it's not surface level and it's not like oh no like i've read like the really obscure stuff so i know like all the cool references it's about that feeling that you get when you read these kinds of stories and what these stories mean to people and it's the kind of thing that I think not a lot of people talk about, um, which is what I liked a lot. And like I said, I think it's the kind of thing where, I don't know, and it, it's hard to say that 
this book is better or worse because after you've read the whole thing, you can go back and read it again. And once, once you hit page 650 for the <laughs> second time, you know, and you can take that for whatever, whatever it's worth, but just specifically from, from my experience of, of reading it twice and being able to read it through that lens of knowing where it gets to in the end and feeling like it's, it's not necessarily, it, it feels like someone who really does care trying to explain all of the really hard stuff about why comics or games or whatever kind of quote unquote, like lowbrow medium can really evoke that sort of feeling in you. It feels like someone really trying to explain why comics could be important, but it does feel like it's kind of aimed at someone who doesn't think of them as important. Like it, it assumes that you are kind of brushing this medium aside the way that most of the characters in the book do. Right. I mean, like this book is intended for somebody like Shelley Annapol. Yeah, exactly. But there's enough things sprinkled in there where it's just like you have someone who's just ever referred to as Stan. I mean, like Jack Kirby mentions that he hears something from Stan. And so, you know, <laughs> you as a reader, it's like, oh, it's Stan Lee, and that's really cool, and these people are in there. And just a bunch of people who are just in there by their first name, and you're like, I think that that's this person. And so, like, that can be really cool and fun. And things like just that first issue of The Escapist, where The Escapist is just punching Hitler in the face. Yeah. And, and, and knowing, there, like, yeah, okay, I know what this is. Exactly. And knowing that that's a reference to that, like, iconic Captain America cover that they do bring up a little bit later. And they say, it's like, oh, yeah. And later there would be that iconic cover with Captain America, but this one was this way. And, I mean, it is one of the really fun parts is you can see all of the really important moments in comics history that Shabon plucks from the history that were normally across all of these writers and illustrators and gives all of them to Cavalier and Clay. Oh, it's the best. Yeah, which is a lot of fun. And it's a really great way of selling, like, these guys are super important because you say, oh, what are all of the really important things that happen in the history of comics? And then it's like, yeah, and these guys did all of them first. And I think it's an interesting way of of selling it. I think it could be really fun. Like, if you were someone who didn't know anything about comics, you go and you read this and it's like, oh, yeah, like this or that crazy thing that they did. And then to go back and find out, it's like, no, someone actually did that. I don't know. I think that'd be kind of neat. But I'm really curious if there's anyone who read this and then became really interested in the history of comics. Because it is written at a level where you don't need to know a lot about comics to get it. But it also feels like it's him trying to say, like, no, this is why this matters. To bring it back, though, I think that that's the big thing, is that it's a book about – it's a very personal book, I think, is is the point I was trying to make. So that's James's talking portion for the non-spoiler break. <laughs> or for the spoiler break. Anyway. Um, I think this is interesting not only hmm? – no. I think this is interesting not only <clears throat> in the context of, like, the history of comics, but also kind of just – history of world war ii because there's a lot i mean there is so much out there that takes place during world war ii or is like specifically more focused on kind of what you would think of when you think of like war literature or like world war ii literature where it's like oh there's a lot more of like actual like military stuff and whatnot and a lot more of that drama and like that is constantly present from like the beginning of this book through the end um it's just it's not like characters don't just like forget oh yeah there's like all this shit happening over in europe i mean like joe being from prague makes it certain that like you have a protagonist who's never just gonna like kind of forget about it and even you know i think it comes up a couple of times where it's mentioned that joe feels guilty having any kind of fun or like trying or like talking to girls for fun and like trying to get any joy out of making these comics like it's just 
for them, like, you know, just to make a living for him. Like, and even when he's making, like, a lot of money with, <clears throat> with Sammy, he doesn't really, like, it's not until he starts kind of putting that money aside specifically to try to get his brother and these kids over in the ship um, that I think he feels kind of much meaning in his life again. Like, because he, he, before, I mean, he has the escapist, the hero, who's kind of like an alter ego of, for him, um, who's, you know, going and, you know, doing things like punching Hitler in the face and like fighting Nazis and doing these things that he wishes he could do himself. And he's taking his own frustrations out by like, what, like going out and getting to fights with people in bars, which is not like, or with German, not just like random people, but like Germans who he considers to be, um, you know, anti-Semitic, which is not like as maybe satisfying as he thinks that might feel in the moment, right? It's not going to be, it's not, he's not being a real hero, like a comic book hero. Um, and so. Especially because I don't think he wins any of those fights ever yeah he gets like fucking beat up <laughs> yeah, he gets that. the shit kicked out of him and shabon goes out of his way to make sure that the reader knows that all of the people he ends up fighting are like anti-nazis who like either fled germany or were already you know living in in america and like are you know anti-fascism like detractors against the current german regime like every single person he fights like is on his side yeah he's he just... he, but he can't see that yeah, he's really just looking for a fight. Yeah, it's the yeah. closest thing he can get to actually doing it. He needs half a reason to, like... I mean, he goes with, like, the baseball game and stuff to try to, like... And he's just, like, look, he has an ear out. And I know, like... I mean, everyone knows people kind of like that, right? Who are, like... They're, for some reason, they want to fight. And they'll just... They need, like, a quarter... Some people need a quarter <laughs> reason to, like, go looking for it if they are really frustrated. And that's always, like... Some people work that out better than others, and watching it with Joe was, like, particularly kind of just really sad because his entire family is back, you know, back in Prague, and then he's so dis- – I mean, considering communication at the time also, right? Yeah. Like, in yeah. some ways, this book feels very modern, like, very contemporary because people – I mean, it's not, like, written in weird 40s slang that's – because some people – I wish. Some writers, when they're doing, like, John – or, not John, period pieces – they really kind of push for like, let's make this sound like we're in the forties kid. Like, yeah. And this does enough of making it feel like the language makes it feel like you are like it's realistic without kind of like hitting you over the head with it. Yeah. Like it still feels New York in the book feels like our New York now. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also not anachronistic. It doesn't, it's not like, it's not explicitly now, but it's also not explicitly old. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's relatable for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's always, it's always fun, right, when there's, like, because they mentioned, like, Radio City Music Hall and things like that, right, and Empire State Building and all these different, you know, classic landmarks, and they'll mention, like, specific streets, like, Waverly and whatnot. But, yeah, with World War Two, I think some of the most effective book, and now, now my Goodreads rating is going slowly <laughs> going up the four while we talk about this, but, like, I think some of the most effective books that get across a lot of like the lessons that people traditionally try to teach about like world war two don't don't take place on the battlefield. They take place, you know, at home or, you know, specifically it's interesting with America's right. Cause England was much more in it, but like America had a very different experience of the war. Um, but yeah, like having Joe and having Sammy and having them be related, but so different and having such different backgrounds really kind of showed a very broad spectrum of war of like kind of World War II experiences, right? Because it's so much more personal for Joe. And Sammy's not like, oh, I don't know what he's talking about. Like he understands that. Like he, that's why he is willing to walk away 
for Annapol when they're like no more Nazis and stuff at the Absolutely. beginning. But I just thought that was super interesting. I mean, and even just all the conversations that people have about expressing like interest in America joining the war, but America's also not necessarily in it yet. And yeah, I I completely agree. And are there any other examples of things like that that you can think of? Because I I know off the top of my head, I couldn't think of any that were just kind of set so casually in day-to-day America where you never forgot what was happening in Europe. But you also were in the sense like, well, but right now my day-to-day life is this comic book stuff. It You have this sense that it's this big, important thing that's happening, and the specter of it is constantly over the book. But I don't know. I thought it was such an interesting balance of the two can you think of anything else that does it like that i can't think of ones that take place in america but and i mentioned connie willis in our last episode she's a she writes she's a sci-fi writer she writes time travel she's my favorite author of all time but she does a few time travel books that take place during world war ii in england mainly um and so one of them is or two of them rather because i think it was originally like one giant giant book and then they're like you this is not one book you got to split it up um blackout and all clear has like three main protagonists and they're all doing they're all like back in world war ii doing very different things like one of them is like a nurse one of the you know they're all doing very like civilian jobs like they're not out there like on the back i mean some of them sometimes they are like right there like at the edge of the battle but they're not like soldiers in it which is the traditional kind of like protagonist in a war story but it's showing like all the people who are also like helping out and what their day-to-day is like and what it's like having relatives who are in the thick of it and what it means for you to be contributing but not be in harm's way quite as much as like your relatives and I mean, with London, you also had the London Blitz. So, again, it's very different from America's experience, right? Um, and it goes into that a lot. But so I think, I th- honestly, even though she's American author and it's time travel, her writing about World War Two is some of my favorite just because she also does a lot of research into it. Mm-hmm. So that all obviously helps a lot. How badly do you guys want to read The Escapist? He actually did a few, I want to say he did a few kind of test comics. I, I actually, I have a book of some escapist comics done by other people, mm. not by, not by him. But yeah, I mean, it seems really cool, doesn't it? Just like as, as a story, it's, it's a, it's a good hook. Like it sounds like a really good golden age superhero story. Yeah. That's the thing. Like knowing that I can go back and enjoy Superman and Batman comics from the era and like the oldest Spider-Man comics, which aren't quite as old, but yeah, but it's like. Yeah, I would love this, you know, kind of pulpy, golden agey, like, escapist book. I really want to read that issue 19, too. I want to see the gritty reboot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. God, what if that was the movie? I'd be really into it. (laughs) The movie adaptation of this is just a gritty reboot. It's a gritty, yeah. Oh, God. I'd watch it. I'd watch the heck out of it. That would be so surreal. Uh, It did a good job. The book also did a good job kind of of like kind of exploring the idea of it just with like Luna Moth, like women in comics, right? It's like, oh, this they're like some is it Annapol? Someone's like, this is just basically like porn. Just because like and there's expectation expectation that if there is a woman female like character, it needs to be like she's uber sexualized and given like I don't know, I just thought that was interesting that they just he decided to like Yeah. DZ makes a great comment at one point where they're going through and they're saying it's just like 
they're talking about like oh well luna moth is doing really well and he's just like he's like it's very hard to fail at pornography boys yeah <laughs> but at the same time though where there's that but like reading it now and reading like the descriptions of it like all of those things are absolutely true and it's very clear that it's a very sexualized character but it also seems pretty clear that there's a lot of other really interesting forward-thinking cool stuff just from a comic standpoint going on as well like it it reminds me a lot of those early Doctor Strange comics that were written literally as a couple guys wandered around the village on acid and I mean could just kind of change the way that you could tell comic stories I think I wish, it's I wish we'd gotten that origin for one of the books yeah <laughs> it's like just one chapter where Joe and Sam walk around the village on acid with Rosa I guess probably yeah who provided the acid and the village yeah exactly <laughs> but like I think that that's I think that's the reference and I think even then that that's one of those things that makes for one of those really cool dichotomies for what makes comics so interesting is on one hand they can be extremely lowbrow and borderline pornographic and like hypersexualized and on the other hand can be really forward thinking and interesting and if you think about like the time when that was would have been written it would have been what the the 40s is when luna moth the character yeah. would have been introduced yeah, early 40s and just just think of the kind of just like bizarre, surreal storytelling that's happening there, and how like way far ahead of its time that would have been. I one of the just little things about like uh, his writing style is that I I love how he'll sort of jump into things with very little warning, almost. Like when we got the the Luna Moth origin story, yeah, which was just like the first chapter of a new part. And it's just like just starts the story about this woman working in this museum or like or library or both or whatever, and I'm just like, what yeah. is going on? Yeah, what and the like fuck is this? it slowly started to dawn on me what was happening, and then by the end of it, I was like, this is badass. Yeah, it's similar to the way that the uh, escapist backstory was done. Yep. it just got a chapter to its own, and I was just like, what is happening? And then I was like, oh, okay. The the escapist one it didn't hit me as strongly because there was like. There was, like, a clear segue into it almost where, like, the previous chapter they leave and they're, like – or, like, Joe, you know, asked him. He's, like, we don't have – you know, the why. We still don't have the why. And he's, like, they grab a couple cigarettes and, like, leave. And then it segues into that chapter, whereas the Luna Moth one was totally unexpected. So it, like, hit me more that that's what he – that he was doing this interesting thing. The same thing happens with the time jumps kind of, right? Like, suddenly it's, like, Joe or Sammy will be in a completely different place. And yeah. you kind of have to be, like, wait, what? And then you realize, oh, like – a year has passed or at least like several months have passed. Um, and I feel like you're never left dangling for too long, like being like, wait, what happened? Why? Like Shabon, like that's Shabon. I always say this wrong. Shabon. <laughs> Shabamon um, does a good job of kind of giving you a little bit of like a surprise of like, oh, okay, so we're somewhere else or we're in another time. But then he catches you up pretty quickly. Yeah, there were diff- there were like false starts when I thought there had been a time skip that there hadn't been. Mm. Like when they do the the Orson Welles thing, uh, and it's like the chapter that ends as they're like going into the theater or whatever, and then the next chapter like explicitly references 1941 and is talking on like a lar- general scale about like the escapist and the things that happened after that going to see that movie, and I'm like, oh okay, so like we've skipped a bunch of time and they've done this thing, these things, and like this is going on, and but and it hadn't at all. There was like a quick like reference to future events, and then right back to where we were, like literally in the theater as like you have the beat that opening shot of Citizen Kane, yeah, and it's like Joe leans over to Sammy and says, "Oh, this is going to be good," and it's yeah, it's literally no time at all has passed. I thought it was so funny that Citizen Kane was like the thing that cha- like Joe wanted to like suddenly do something different. 
because like citizens citizen kane is always like the film that everybody like compares everything to or like yeah right it's like it's like a classic film school like you watch that and you're supposed to like worship it and degree in cinema studies never seen it I yeah, I hated it when I saw it. We had watched it in class and I was like, not I was like, really? Are we doing this? But I mean I'm glad to have seen it because you have to see it in order to understand what the hell everyone's talking about. Um, but it's like there's always this look at like oh it's Bioshock, the Citizen Kane of like video games. And so it was interesting having that that there was some article that was like writing asking that question. Seeing this in a comp, like in the comics context, like oh, they want to make the comic book equivalent of Citizen Kane. And I mean, arguably they moment. do, right? Yeah, is the idea that that Kane Street that that issue that nineteen, story, yeah. yeah, is the the one that kind of at least for them changes the way that people think about comic books in the same way that Citizen Kane kind of changed the way people thought about movies. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, it seems to be what what they get at with all of that. Yeah, the whole idea that it's like the beginning of the this like you know, the spearhead to, uh, to get adults reading comics yeah, and that whole thing. Yeah. And I love that. That was like, cause now you don't question like, obviously adults read comics, but like back then it really was much more geared for children, for, for boys. And I said, Annapol or, or uh, DZ who was like, wait, you want to write comics for adults that adults will read. Yeah. And that's like such a weird kind of ludicrous idea. Bored. You know, it was Annapol. Okay. Because the meeting was, it was just Joe and Sammy meeting Annapol. Mm -hmm. Sounds right. DJ wasn't around. Oh, yeah. Like in his like closet office after. (laughs) After he decided to get out of that like big grand office he had built for himself or whatever. Yeah. I feel like just in general, Sheldon Annapol and and George DZ are, I I feel like as far, I like them a lot as supporting characters. They're both kind of good pretty consistently for comic relief, but even just like as and it's just like really good stand-ins for what happened to a lot of people in those early days of comics where you know, when you sign away your rights to this character and suddenly someone else just made millions and millions and millions of dollars off of your back. And don't get me wrong, like again, Joe and Sammy made money. Don't nope. And they lived no incredibly comfortably. Like they lived like kings at the time. Yeah. But, but like the the other guys lived like emperors of the world, just like in comparison. Yeah, and weren't doing the like the the day to day work of making those characters and making those strips and writing those stories. And it, I liked it a lot. It's, I think they do a good way, a good job of making them simultaneously gross and kind of sympathetic. Annapol, I gotta say, I never really felt as much sympathy for, um, DZ, like, you know, he's presented to you as the, the scummy editor guy who, who Sammy can't, doesn't really like. And you get that. So you already have this like negative bias coming in, but then, the more you get to know him, the more you like you you see that he's just this guy who, like you know, has no real faith in any of the work that he's produced, and feels like despite the fact that he's worked creatively his entire life, he's never been creatively fulfilled. Yeah, and he has that whole aspect of his character, and he like really does try to be this like you know father figure to Sammy in terms of the industry and like how he can run his career, and like it, all of that stuff kind of redeemed the initial negative image of him that I had. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely have, like, a love-hate thing with both Annapol and DZ. Because with Annapol, it's like he, you know, he had ambition with the violin. He was, like, pretty good at it. But then he just it just never went anywhere because he kind of, like, grew up and got a little bit, you know, cynical. And so here's someone who obviously also has, like, you don't, you know, you're not that dedicated to the violin unless you do have an appreciation for art. But then now this is, like, he sells whoopee cushions, you know, when we first meet him. Yeah. Um, and, like, tiny radios and, like, weird little knickknacks, right, like that. 
And then you have DZ, who is like kind of, he's very pretentious. I mean, the way that the narrator for the audiobook definitely gets his voice just like perfect. Like he's just, there's like something slightly affected and like weird. And, but he's like also very, he's like, he's condescending, but also kind of like fatherly. Yeah. I mean, not that the two are opposite. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, and he also like, he writes his pulp stories and stuff. And he calls it all trash. Like, even his own writing, he's like, I can't believe you read my books. They're obviously, like, they're all garbage. And so, like, you have these two young guys, Joe and Sammy, who are very much, like, they have hopes for the future. And they're just starting out. And they're not, like, cynical yet. And then you have these two older guys who have, like, they also had artistic ambition. And now they're just over it because it didn't work out for them. I just, I think they really, they're kind of, like, they play very well against each other. Yeah, I agree. I see. in addition to that, I think... One of the other big things that I like a lot, just one of the through lines through the book is just the idea of golems and this sense of it as being this this work that you create out of, I mean, arguably in a lot of ways, out of clay and a cavalier attitude. It like I like I don't think that that is by accident. And just this sense of they, it starts off with Joe's idea for a superhero as the golem. And it, he sets it, Shavon sets it up very clearly at the beginning that the escapist is their golem. You know, this is their creation that goes out into the world to protect the unprotected, the people who are in bondage and who need a hero. And you have all of that and just, you see the amount of just, I don't know, just energy and soul and spirit that joe and sammy pour into this character in the ways that that joe sends him out to go and punch hitler in the face and fight nazis and tear tanks apart and all the things like that and go out and do all the things that he wishes he could do but he can't and all those things just this sense of building that to go out and sort of living through that and the way that that grows and ultimately comes back around in the the novel that Joe, it turns out, has been working on the whole time at the end. The totally visual, no text at all, just was like, what, like 2,000 page graphic novel that he's been working on during his time, like, hiding out in the Empire State Building. Um, that is explicitly about the golem. And, you know, a bunch of the characters are rabbis and angels, and he kind of comes back around and brings that sort of more mystical side to it. And just the whole setup that they they get at the end and I I think part of what's so great about that is it it strikes me as another great way of coming back around to that idea of escape and that this golem helped Joe escape from Prague and he wants to sort of give back to that and make this golem of his own and that that golem had to kind of effectively disguise itself as the escapist for a period of time and that the book kind of ends on this potential for it to go out and sort of become revealed again and that you have this actual golem who can go out and protect the world and just is is who he is he's not dressed up as a superhero he doesn't have any of these pretensions or senses of like oh well the american audience isn't going to go for you know some story about like jewish myth and folklore and legend and spirituality and things like that or a book with you know a bunch of rabbis as the characters and angels but that you really feel like you have that opportunity at the end and just that sense of the kind of blood sweat and tears that you do pour into a work of fiction like that i think is a really nice just ongoing 
I just like visual, I guess. I I like that a lot. I think it's a nice way to sort of tie all those things together. I think it's another just like nice layer on the the collective sense of escape as it goes through and another nice way to sort of tie into it from come at it from another angle. Oh, but Crin, there were some lines that you were saying earlier that you really liked that you wanted to get to after the spoiler breaks. We didn't want to yeah. drop any of those. Do you want to Um any in particular that Yeah, I'm going to go with probably my favorite one um which was when Joe sneaks into or like breaks into the window and sees um what's her name? Uh, Rosa? Rosa. Rosa. Yeah, sees Rosa naked. Like, their first encounter when, like, she, like, screams and runs out. And then, um, uh, the other guy, J- Julie? Julius? Yeah. Julie. 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 Um, the guy, Julie, asks him to draw a picture, and he does. And, um, you know, we just, we just go on and on about, like, the picture. And it's a beautifully described picture of a sleeping naked woman and i think my my favorite thing was that at the end of that yeah i know yeah julie goes what's the line you didn't show her boobs and it's just it was such that to me was the pinnacle of the like you know punctuation following these long flowery descriptions because the the preceding description of the picture was was gorgeous it was really phenomenal and you could tell that this picture was really something special and then to just have it punctuated with that like crass like you know i don't care about your art like i just want to see some titties kind of sentiment was was very well done although i mean i think for me the the punctuation mark on that description like i know the idea is having a whole sentence or one sentence to be that to be that thing but that whole last passage where julie's like oh you didn't show her boobs what is this oh god whatever and then he like puts it away and then you know the thing where he's like you know when he was when he whenever it was that he eventually died and like in his wallet was that picture that yeah. he carried around with him and they it was like or it was in it was in with his like personal effects found after he died and it like got put into a museum and attributed to him as some art that he that he drew but the idea that he carried it like with his small collection of person like very personal items for the rest of his life mm-hmm. was the thing that hit me yeah um there was it was very successful the way that he would dip into the future to sort of just give these little notes about how things ended up yeah and it was usually just one or two lines that just said like you know and here's you know what ended up happening as we all know because we are from the future looking back on this and um that that sort of brevity and just the underscoring that they would do to the character the situation or whatever it was that it was describing was was really really well done something that i liked a lot yeah, so it's I, it, it's so hard to really have a brief conversation about this book, and I feel like we've we've kind of limited ourselves in in a lot of ways because there are huge swaths and subplots that we just didn't even touch on at all. There's you know, the period where Joe spends what like a year in the Arctic. Yep. <laughs> and because why not? Sure. Yeah. You know, and there's the whole subplot with. Carl Abling and I mean much of the subplot and the ways that that then ties into Sammy's life and there's Sammy's whole relationship with uh 
Tracy Bacon. Yeah. And which, I mean, just leads to, I think, so many just wonderful scenes, like when they go into the remains of the World's Fair, when they're up mm-hmm. at the top of the Empire State Building, which is like doubly because he's up there and he's just like watching for planes. It's that same kind of like specter of war and just that sense of, well, yeah, I never really thought about that you would have, you would stick a, a volunteer up in the Empire State Building, to just look out the window looking for German planes. And just those weird sort of bizarre, almost surreal slice of life moments and where Tracy just shows up with two bags of gourmet hotel food. And then you have like the whole story of where he got that and what his life must be like and the whole fight for the, you know, the rights for the radio show and the TV show that we touched on a little bit, but that go on into being so much of a plot line. And I mean, honestly, it, I hate to say it, but just even the whole story with Rosa and where she's been. And I feel like it's almost too bad that I think if someone were to just listen to this, it would sound like she's just a side character. And she's admittedly not a protagonist in the same way that Joe and Sammy are. But this is in a lot of ways as much her story. And she is arguably the point of view character for large chunks closer to the end. And just the way that they deal with having a son together and just even the subplot with Joe's brother Thomas and the Ark of Miriam and trying to get him to America. It There are so many things that are just kind of going on and happening at the same time. I think one of the real successes of, of this book is making it really feel like two full lives in the way that I think a lot of books fail to do, where a book might focus on the big pushing plot at hand, and because of that, you don't get a really good rounded picture of a character. But with this, you see so many of the little things that go through. I mean, even Joseph's later career as a magician performing at bar mitzvahs where people are explicitly hiring him because they know that he takes all of the money and donates it to trying to bring people over from, from Prague and Europe. And just all of the little places that this book goes, it's so hard to boil it down and go and really talk about it thoroughly in just an hour. But yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing there's, there's just a lot here. And I mean, we've talked a lot about like the length of the book and it's, it is certainly not short. And I think there are absolutely arguments to be made that there are parts that can be trimmed. But I think that even if you were to bring it down to the abridged stuff, there's so many of those side stories that just, we didn't even have time to touch on, let alone, you know, it, I don't think it's a question of not having anything more to say, but so with that, I, and God, I wish, I almost wish we could go through and talk about this for like hours and hours just so we could touch on everything because there are so many things but with that though i think that it is time to call it an episode for our next episode we will be talking about the prestige directed by christopher nolan and after that we will be playing 999 and then we're going to be swinging back around i'm sure to cavalier and clay as we get into our topic episode for the entire series, and we come back to talk about Escape in all of its forms across all these media. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Read, Watch, Play. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is tell your friends about the show. You can also rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to find us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RWP Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash RWP Podcast. Check out our Tumblr at rwppodcast.tumblr.com and look for our game streams on twitch.tv slash RWP Podcast.